0: You wouldn't mind taking your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 2. My intent is to actually preach the message I prepared this week. (laughs) Actually, let's be honest, I don't ever preach the message I actually prepared. (laughs) Just kind of let it rip and see what happens. So let's see what happens this morning, shall we? Colossians chapter 2, we've been studying the book of Colossians. We're we're looking at the idea of the, the, the image that's there before you, the fact that every tree you see, every plant you see, there is, there's a root system that goes deep beneath the ground that nourishes it and cares for it and strengthens it, and Paul's encouragement to the church at Colossae to make sure that they're paying attention to the very roots, and, and what we have found in the first couple of chapters of Colossians is that, that the roots of our Lives, the, the very root of who we are is, is nothing less than Jesus Christ Himself. And it's important that we just continue to anchor into the truth that, in, in, in truth, Jesus is everything. We need to stop chasing other things, stop chasing, which actually makes me laugh right now, stop chasing things. In reality, um, there are a lot of rabbit trails that I could chase this morning, so we'll see which ones we chase. But we can't chase rabbit trails when it comes to what, what lays at the center of who we are at the core of our being. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's always been Jesus, and it always will be Jesus. And for us to let our eyes slip off of those things of the gospel, of the, the power of who Jesus is, um, that, that's what the Colossian church was doing, and, and that's what Paul's trying to encourage us not to do. Let me, let me go ahead and read our text this morning. We're we'll starting verse 16 and go all the way down to uh, the end of the chapter. So Colossians. Chapter 2, starting in verse 16, it says this, "'Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come, but the substance is Christ.'" Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with the growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? I mean, all these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up, and they're human commands and doctrines. Although those things have a reputation for wisdom, by promoting self-made religion, false humility, severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So, so here, what is happening is Paul is, is getting ready to launch into the practical application of everything he's been speaking about. He's getting ready to get to the nitty-gritty of life that, that we get to look at for the next three, four, five weeks here as a church. But, but all the way leading up to this point, he just keeps going back to the roots, back to the roots, back to the roots. Now, for today, what he's doing, he's saying, okay, now let's examine your roots. And he asks the, the, the very poignant question, so what are you rooted in? Because his evaluation of the church at Colossae, his evaluation of the Colossian believers is this, you, you're rooted in things that you should never be rooted in. You, you've taken anchor in things that are just going to lead to ultimate disappointment and heartache and hurt, and they're not actually going to do anything for your soul. They can't bring peace. They're, 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 they're impotent to bring any change. And so he asks the Colossians, what are you rooted in? And then he actually, it's very interesting, in verse 16 he says, listen, okay, don't let anybody judge you, And then in verse 18, don't let anybody condemn you. So he gives them the challenge of, listen, I want you to know we're gonna look at your roots and and the first thing you need to get out of your head is being so concerned about what people who are coming in and and, and preaching about things that aren't of Christ, people who are coming in and laying down regulations and rules that aren't from the mouth of Christ, aren't from the, the, the mind of God, you need to forget about what they're saying about you. That's easy, right? So I don't know about you, Um, But um, if you have any opportunity to be in a leadership position, um, many of us in leadership positions uh, worry uh, often, some might even say obsess at times, about what other people think about us. I find it remarkable that most men that, that God calls into a preaching or teaching ministry they're, they're they're besetting sin, the thing they struggle with the most, is an insecurity that results in the fear of man. You know why that is, right? It's the old Paul thing. Uh, this is my weakness, I'm gonna brag about my weakness, and so here I stand in front of you, which is really weird. Let me tell you how weak I am, everybody. Uh, it's not for a pat on the back. It's not for attaboys, boys. It's not for somebody to come alongside and like, oh, you'll be fine. It's reality. My greatest weakness is insecurity and the fear of man. And what Paul is saying is directly to me: Do not let anybody come alongside you and judge you. He's not saying the the, the modern uh, equivalent of, hey, don't judge. It says, don't judge. That's not what he's saying. You look through the, the whole of Scripture and you find um, opportunities where brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to come alongside you like iron sharpens iron or faithful are the wounds of a friend who comes in and says, hey man, I, I see this in you and you got a little uh, off track. Why don't we bring it back in? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is what I want you to do is be consistent about the truth. No matter how radical that truth may be, Compared to the culture you find yourself in. You be consistent to that truth. And when these outsiders come in and they begin to judge you, they begin to condemn you. Just a little sports analogy there in verse 18 when he says don't let anybody condemn you. The, the idea is somebody who is an official in a, a sport who comes and calls you out of bounds. It's like a bad umpire calling a strike when it's not a strike. Then these guys have no ground to stand on yet. They're coming in and they continue to tell you that, that you are doing the wrong things. So, so it doesn't mean don't care. It, what it does mean is don't care for the negative evaluation of someone who's selling something other than Christ. So, so that's what you need to start off with. What are you rooted in? Don't be obsessed with what other people say. Instead, let's talk about what's down there, okay? So now let's evaluate what's down there. In verse 16, he says, don't let anybody judge you in regard to what? In regard to food or drink. So this is a little interesting. Um, all right, ready? Um, are you rooted in your religious rules? See, what was happening is people were coming in and saying, you you can't eat that, and you can't drink that, you certainly can't even touch that, and so if you were to do any of those things, well, then God's not happy with you. So it's interesting, it's not saying that you couldn't be a Christian, it's just saying you couldn't be a good Christian if you did those things. And where they're getting it from is in Leviticus chapter 11, it says the Lord was talking to Moses and to Aaron, and he walks through, and, and he says, here are the unclean animals, the animals you're not allowed to eat, and it's hilarious because it says you can't eat a camel. Bummer. I was really looking for a camel kebab later today or something. Can't have a, a rabbit, can't eat pigs. Okay, we knew all that. And then it gets to the sea and it says you can eat anything in the water that has fins and scales. You know what that means? Crabs and lobsters are out. And so praise God for Jesus. We'll talk about that in a second. Amen. All right, okay. It says you, you, can, you need to abhor these birds. You don't eat these types of birds. You don't eat eagles. That's actually probably a good thing. You don't eat ravens. Okay, there you go. Going to leave it there. Oh, you don't eat barn owls. You don't eat storks. You can't eat, and my Bible version has kites. So don't eat kites. So it's type of hawk. But but yeah, I found that funny this morning. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, you must be really hungry if you're eating kites. But so, so God had laid out all of these rules, all these ceremonial unclean and clean laws and said don't eat these, don't touch these. And then you get to Mark chapter 7 where, where Jesus is dealing with the the, the, the Pharisees again, and he says, are you guys lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that, that nothing going into a person from the outside can actually defile him? So you're judging people on what they're eating. Don't you know that what they eat can't actually defile them? And then Jesus says, it doesn't go into his heart when he eats it. It goes into his stomach and is eliminated. And then <laughs> Jesus said it. And then he says, and Mark makes a comment there, this is when Jesus declared all foods clean. So he says Leviticus 11, those were rules for a time, and now all foods are clean. In fact, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, the verse actually says, food will not bring you close to God. So so that we're no worse if we don't eat certain foods, and we're no better if we do eat certain foods. So so don't get so wrapped up in what you're eating. It's not too unlike our current affinity for telling everybody else what is actually good for them and what makes them holy if they eat. Um, I make jokes about kale all the time because it tastes like dirt. And this morning, a dear sister gave me kale chips. It was We'll give it a shot because, you know, I'm a trooper. We won't video it because I don't want to offend her when I throw a moment. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but we do, don't we? We come alongside. Like, listen, you don't, you don't eat carbs. You don't eat sugars. You don't eat anything that has a lot of fat in it. You don't eat anything with any flavor at all. You're supposed to avoid all of those things because that's what matters most right now. And, and I, I mean this, and please understand. I appreciate the fact that some of you want to be really healthy the way you eat, but you can eat as much kale as you want. You're still going to die someday. You, you can fill yourself full with all the vitamins and nutrients, and you can post all the things on Facebook you want, but the moment that God says your time is up, your time is up regardless of what you ate. Now, I'm not ripping on you, so please understand that. However, I'm going to apply that in my own life, and I'm going to eat as much red meat and bacon as I can, and just enough ice cream to keep my physique a little out of shape so I don't get arrogant, right? Isn't that the way? To, that's, I think that's probably good, <laughs> uh, but that's, that's the point really is this. We care for the temple that God has given to us. It's a stewardship of health, and we need to take that seriously. So I'm joking, but we do need to take that seriously. But we should never allow issues such as food and drink to becoming a determining factor how good or not good you are in God's eyes. It can never elevate to that level, and I'm gonna be honest with you. In our culture today, it does. In our culture today, what you eat or don't eat and what you drink and what you don't drink is now uh, regarded as the level of spirituality and how much you understand the universe around you. Now, now it can go further than food and drink, can't it? I mean, what, what you eat actually becomes a discussion about where you're willing to eat. Or, or even better, what you drink or where you drink and, and, and I don't have time for it this morning, it's Mother's Day, so I need to be nice to mom, so I'm going to move on. But, but what happens is when you establish those rules as, as a, a means of saying this is sanctification, this is holiness and righteousness. Well, what, what you've just done is made something else the very center. And Paul says we will not be rooted in religious Rules, and then he continues on in that very verse. He says, "Are you are you rooted in religious practices? Not only is it food or drink, but also in matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day." So what he's saying is now, now some people are coming in and they're clinging to the religious calendar of events that, that good Old Testament people would adhere to. You can see all these events laid out. Leviticus chapter 25 is one place you can, you can look at it. Isaiah chapter 1, you can see it there. Exodus chapter 20, you can, you can see it there. And just a brief explanation about these things. The, the festivals that he's talking about were actually annual events. So it'd be things like the, the, the observance of the beginning of the Exodus. That's the, the Feast of Passover. Or, or it could be the celebration of the end of the exodus, Exodus, excuse me, which is the, the feast of weeks. And so, so you would celebrate those things and make sure that you, you made sure you poured yourself into these things and made these things the most important. And then, then he said, so, so, so festivals, and then there's new moons. The beginning of every new moon, there was a huge celebration and a, and a huge religious observance where they would thank God for the new lunar month that had just started. And then, then Sabbaths probably the one we're most familiar with. That happened weekly. So so every Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath, and it was a time where they would um, reflect and rest on God's complete work in creation. That's the Sabbath. What Paul says to the Colossians is, "Are, are are you like clinging to those things to gain you acceptance in God's eyes? Because if you understand what Jesus did, he came and he fulfilled all of those feasts himself. You look at the Feast of Passover, that's fulfilled in Jesus. He's the very beginning of the leading of his people out of the captivity of sin. You look at the Feast of Weeks, Jesus is the conclusion of that Exodus process. The Feast of Weeks is what we celebrate when we will face Jesus eyeball to eyeball in glory. Sabbath. Sabbath. Sabbath is, is, is that rest that we experience that he promises us in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, come to me all of you who are, are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your soul. That doesn't mean you're gonna get a great nap, although you know how I feel about great naps, okay? But that doesn't mean that. What it means is Jesus says, Sabbath is truly the relaxation and rest that you get after the work is complete. You come to me, the work is finished. You get to rest in who I am. So what Paul's saying is, listen, if Christians abstain from certain foods or certain drinks or if they set aside certain days, then good on you and knock yourself out, but they're not to rise to the level of placing an obligation on a follower of Jesus as a means of experiencing the true pleasure of God in your life. We can't elevate those things. To demand that would really be us undermining the work of Jesus, because if human effort actually was effective at accomplishing us peace with God, then the work of God through Jesus was completely unnecessary. But that's not the case. In fact, what Paul says here is, listen, these things, both food and drink and the matter of a festival New Moon Sabbath Day, verse 17, these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. The picture is this, it's a shadow. It's, it's the people in the Old Testament needed the pictures to see how God was gonna come through in the end, how God was gonna fulfill his promises in the end, and he, he gave them all of these pictures leading up to it, and all of them came with a promise. You read the Old Testament sacrificial uh, code, and you always find with it this promise that someday it'll be completed. And so even in the Old Testament, they continue to look. I mean, I've used this before. It's from Tim Keller. He does a fantastic job helping us to explain uh, the, the consistency of the Old Testament with who we are today. He looks at the Old Testament law and says there's a a portion of the Old Testament law that is a civil law because the people of God were a theocracy. They were a nation state under God. And so God laid out the the civil law. The penalties for sin were a result of the fact that the people of God lived in a a nation state that was run by God. And so that civil law would, would be so you would stone your disobedient children, Happy Mother's Day! But, but that, that, it's like, well, what is that all about? What is that? But that, that was the, the civil law, much like our Constitution today, but it would be the, the civil law. It would lay out the rules, and then there would be punishments that came along with them. Now, now because today we are no longer a nation-state under God, instead the people of God gathered together in church assemblies, that's different, that's civil law, the, the penalty phase, <laughs> of the Old Testament law doesn't apply to us today. Instead, the church is commanded to practice church discipline, uh, even up to the most extreme level of church discipline, which is to excommunicate somebody from membership. So it's different through what Christ has accomplished in making the church. But, but then you look at the, the Old Testament and you see the ceremonial law. You see the, the picture of the sacrificial system and a complex set of rules about how, how um, there should be purity and cleanness with that sacrificial system. How you could eat certain things, not eat certain things. How you could approach God uh, only if you wore the right clothing. You had to refrain from touching a variety of objects and people at certain times of the year and so on and so on. And it's incredibly complicated. And if you just read through it, it's like Like, how in the world would anybody keep this code? And that's the point. The point of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament was to drive home the knowledge into the head of each Israelite that in and of yourself, you can't possibly maintain purity. You need a sacrifice. You need someone else to to, to gain your purity for you, and that's exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. So Hebrews, you read through the book of Hebrews, and that's what it's talking about the entire time, the supremacy of Christ and the fact that the sacrificial system is done and it's gone because in Jesus, the sacrificial system was fulfilled. But the third type of law you find in the Old Testament is the moral Law. It's a picture, an outline of God's own moral character. It's his integrity, his love, his faithfulness, his mercy. And so, so all of the Old Testament says about things like loving our neighbor or, or caring for the poor or being generous with our possessions, the social relationships we have, the, the commitment to our family, even the sexual ethic of the Old Testament, all of those things continue to carry through because it is a picture of God's very character for us. So, okay, some of you this week, if you hadn't already seen it, you probably will if you're on Facebook, may see a little bit of hubbub about a very popular person who spoke against the Old Testament. Um, a, I have not listened to what he actually said, and so I am not able to comment on it. I should listen to it before I comment on it. Um, I've read a lot of articles about people just destroying this guy. Let, let me just be clear about what we think about the Old Testament, okay? That, that I can do, because... It, I have to self-edit myself. I don't have to listen to anybody else. You guys are stuck listening to me. When you look at the Old Testament, we don't reject it. We don't stop reading it. We don't look at the Old Testament as old-fashioned or judgy. When you look at the Old Testament, you you see it as what God uses to remind us of his holy and moral character. When you look at the Old Testament, it's a reminder of our total inability to live up to that standard, his moral character on our own. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we see the, the requirement that it is laid out for us and then we see the promise of God to care for us if we live by faith, trusting in him to do what he said he would do by taking him at his word. And then what we see when we look at the, the Bible as a whole, Old Testament and the New Testament, you see Jesus coming not to tear down the Old Testament, he came to fulfill it. And so Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices, all of the hopes of the Old Testament. And so what we see, you've got the civil law, that's set aside because we are now a, an assembly of church. You, you've got God's uh, ceremonial law, which has been fulfilled in Jesus. You've got God's moral law, which continues because we see God's character in it. And So, so what we understand as we look at the Old Testament is that, that through Jesus, he changes the way we worship, but he doesn't change the way we live there's still a call for holiness because God's moral law remains intact. Okay, so that was one rabbit trail, and I'm gonna jump because we could stay on that for a little while. I'm gonna to jump to the next one. So are you rooted in religious rules? Are you rooted in religious practices? Are you rooted in religious experience? This one's actually kind of fascinating. You look at verse 18. Let nobody condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices. So let me define what asceticism is for you. It's that voluntary abstaining from things that bring satisfaction, joy, and delight to your physical, emotional well-being. So, it would be a picture of abstaining from food, drink, sleep, clothing. Well, that one's interesting. (laughs) Wealth. (laughs) The reason I said that. Social interaction, sexuality, all those things. Where do you see asceticism most often? You see it in monks. What they've done is they've, they've sworn an ascetic vow of silence, of poverty, of celibacy, and, and they hide themselves away, and it's, it's miserable. Many monks, one of the things that they have done, instead of you, you see the monk robes, many of them have actually put into some of them, there's a sect of monks that put into their robes um, um, a type of rope and wool combination so that as they walk, it constantly rubs against the back of their shoulders, irritating their skin. Because what has happened is there becomes this spirituality that we think we can attain if we're miserable. See, I'm, I'm, I want to be holy, so I'm going to be miserable. That's the way we view holiness. Holiness is no fun, right? Don't say right. Please don't say right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's not how God designed us. When you look at how God has laid life out, how God has commanded us to do certain things and to not do certain things, it is always because God knows what will bring us ultimate joy. It's not because he's some cosmic killjoy who every time you crack a smile is gonna reach down and slap you in the back of the head. That's not how God works. God has given us good gifts and, and the, the idea of asceticism to reject all of these good God-given gifts of joy and happiness, is to, I mean, it's to play the fool. What you're doing is you're saying, God thanks, but I know a better way to this. Now now let's be honest, there are times when we need to deny ourselves, and I'm not talking about a diet, okay? But there's times when we need to deny ourselves and those are, there's two very specific times that are laid out in scripture. And, and, and the first one is through fasting. So we fast from food in order to pray. But, but remember, even as, as that happens, you, you look at what Jesus says in, in Matthew. He says, but when you fast, don't walk around all mopey so everybody knows you're fasting. Take a shower. Please, take a shower. Okay. Put a smile on your face. This isn't meant to be this time like, oh, oh, I'm so hungry, but I'm holy. No, man. Yeah, you fast, and then the time that you're supposed to be eating, you spend praying. And every time your stomach starts to rumble, you're not like, oh man, I wish I was eating. Every time your stomach rumbles, you're supposed to say, Lord, I am continuing to pray for this thing that I'm fasting for. That is a reminder for me to call out to you for wisdom, direction, for intervention, whatever it might be. But, but, but remember, there's rules to the fasting. You don't do it so that everybody sees you. The other one, and I'll try to be careful because it's Mother's Day, is is your sexual relationship in marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says there is a reason to abstain from that physical intimacy within marriage, but there are rules that go with it, like it has to be mutually agreed upon. Okay, It's a specific period of time, so you can stay for three, four days, and it's with a distinct purpose of dedicating your time in prayer. And then you agree to come back together in physical intimacy at the end of it. So so there are reasons for ascetic things to happen in your life, but it's not asceticism that brings holiness. It's not asceticism that makes you experience these wonderful holy moments to make yourself so very miserable, doesn't make you free. It's funny, he actually says this, um, verse 18, they're inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. To to continue to to make yourself miserable doesn't make you free with your walk with God. It just makes you miserably arrogant. And I'll just keep moving on from that. Verse 18 also says, talks about the worship of angels. So so some of you have experienced this this moment where you got to see angels. And and come on, let's let's be very clear. In our culture today, we just see that popping up all over the place where someone is, 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 is dead and then brought back from death. They're like, I saw the light. And not in the old spiritual way. I mean, I saw the light, and I saw angels, and, and I saw this, and I saw that, and now I'm a now I'm a religious black belt because I have all the wisdom that I could possibly need about what heaven is and what God looks like and how angels sing. I mean, that book was huge a few years ago. Well, heaven is real. Now, now, please, I know I'm being sarcastic, but I want to make sure I'm clear. I'm not saying people didn't see something, and I'm not even saying I won't I won't even argue that maybe they saw angels. What I am saying is we should never build our belief system on their report. Our belief system is built on the word. We've got a clear description of what heaven's like and who God is and what angels are like. We don't worship angels. They become, what happens is when these people come Come back. Sorry, I'll just say that. When these people begin their report, what they, they're, they're doing is they're creating this system of, 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 of foundation for us to have a belief on. And, and in fact, what they've done is disconnected. He even says it they have disconnected from the head. Verse 19. He's not holding on to the head, talking about Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body nurses. And if, if we continue to put emphasis on religious experience, then what we've done is just removed Jesus from the equation, and I promise that is not an equation that works out in your favor. Faith is not built off of moments of experience built in the word of God. So what are you rooted in? Are you rooted in religious rules? Are you, are you rooted in your, uh, <coughs> excuse me, your, your religious practices or your religious experience? What's at the center of your life? And most times when I preach, and it's, this is not by mistake, this is on purpose. Most times when I preach, I make direct application to those people who are lost in their sin. Uh, that's that's not an accident. So, so I do want to make sure I take time to make an application to you right now. If you are here and you have continued to reject Jesus and rebel against God, either knowingly or unknowingly, you have to understand that to say no to Jesus is to reject God's gift to you for peace, for salvation. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is your can be your righteousness, and it's not anything you do. You you, you do know the only merit that you bring that God would accept is your sin. It sounds crazy. But that's the only thing that he accepts because when you come in your sin crying out for a savior, he'll save you. When Jesus said it, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came for those who were lost. Salvation isn't about rules, it's not about practices, it's not about experience. What salvation is, it's about Jesus. That's the whole book of Colossians is about. And, I, and I'm afraid that some of you sitting here are like, hey, I'm in church, so I'm saved. No you're not, you're in church, it's dumb but just because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car. But I fear for many of you sitting here this morning that's where you're at. So come to Jesus, come to Jesus. Salvation isn't in any other, it's in Christ and in Christ alone. It's because he shed his blood for you on the cross. He, he died on that cross where you should have died. And he did for you what you could never do for yourself. And he brought peace between you and God. Because his sacrifice was holy, pure, and final. Come to Jesus. The bigger application of this text in Colossians today is to those of you sitting in this room who are lost in your religion. Religion. And you've replaced Jesus. Too often we get caught up in good things. And we look for those good things to give us what only God can give us. It's because our, our hearts are so deceptive, deceitful, and we begin to look at those things to, to get us an acceptance and love from God. When in reality, through Jesus, we've already been given love and acceptance. And that the very root you want know, to keep talking roots, the very root of leaning on rules, practices and experience as your measure of holiness, the very root of that is unbelief because you don't believe that Jesus did enough to make you acceptable in God's eyes. But we're reminded we were reminded a couple weeks ago that he redeemed you, that he washed you, that he forgave you, that he qualified you, that he transferred you out of this world of darkness into his kingdom of light. That through Jesus you stand before God forgiven. That that because of Jesus you stand before God being able to, to experience the full pleasure of God. Wrap your head around that for just a moment. The God who spoke into nothing, and yet something responded because of his power and might. The God who breathes out stars. That very God is going to dump his full pleasure on you. What is that like? And it's not because of how wonderful you are. It doesn't, it's not because of what you eat or drink or don't eat or don't drink. It's, it's not because of how many times you go to church a week. It's not because of what you dress Like, it's not because of the experience you had at a retreat or a conference one day. It's because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So what are you rooted in? I'm gonna steal a phrase. It better be nothing but the blood of Christ. It better be the good news that God loved you as unlovable and rebellious as you were. And Jesus Christ died where you should have died so that you could have life. I, for, for too many of us, what happens is we hear Jesus and we think, that's step one. So I'm going to come to Jesus, and then I'm going to work my tail off. And the reality is, it's, it's not step one. It's not chapter one in the book. It's the covers of the book. It's the preface of the book. It's the introduction of the book. It's chapters one, two, three, four, five. It keeps going. It's every review of the book that's ever been written is Jesus. Man, it's not a call against sanctification or, or, or separation or being holy. It's not a call against those things. The problem is, though, we are such deceitful creatures, we take that holiness and go, thank you, Jesus, I got it from here. And that doesn't sound like, as you receive Jesus Christ, so walk in him. We don't move on from what Jesus did for us. We don't receive God's gift of life through Jesus and then start trying to figure it out on our own. So has anybody else picked up a theme in Colossians yet? Every week it's Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus. Is that your root? Is that your center? Or have you tried to move on from Christ, may we continue to run to the foot of the cross. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. I thank you, Father, that you love us more than we could ever wrap our heads around. And God, I do. I, I, I humbly ask that the one who might be here this morning who doesn't know Christ, that today they would, they would simply yield that they would understand that, that they don't have anything good that's going to, to pile up high enough to gain your pleasure, your acceptance, your peace. But but God, all, all they need to do, the, the goodness comes from yielding to Jesus Christ and his work for them. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here who 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 um, some of them are lost in religion. I, God, give them freedom. Give them the freedom to know that that because of what Christ did for them, they are loved and accepted, that they are cherished by the God of all gods, the Lord of lords, the God of creation, the God over the universe, the God over all. Um, Lord, help them to see clearly your care, your affection for them. And Lord, I pray that every single one of us today would simply look to the cross and be reminded of what we received when Jesus exchanged places with us. Freedom. And may we wash in it. Amen.